You're listening to the Casimir Engine. That's me. Kaka. Hasn't that been done to death? Isn't that so 990s? You think so? It's the Casimir Engine. It's not Kaka. Yeah, it's the Casimir Engine Show podcast, episode two. If life was not bad enough, Kaz is back. You know, if you'd brought out a new show, something like this, a podcast, you'd do new jingles, wouldn't you, that would kind of big yourself up a bit, but not on the Casimir Engine Show. So what is the Casimir Engine Show podcast? Well, it's a, a chinwag with friends, uh, a chat with musicians, movers and shakers in the world of art, people from around the world with a story to tell. So join us every week on iTunes. So if you've already joined the team, thank you very much. And if not, pull your finger out. You can get all the details on iTunes. And we've also got um, the website. And we've got Twitter and Facebook. And they're dead easy to remember. Because on Twitter, it's at Casimir Podcast. And on Facebook, I think you can do that thing now with the at sign, can't you? It's at Casimir Podcast. Dead simple. The website address is the Casimir Engine Show, all one word, dot podbean, P-O-D-B-E-A-N dot com. And that's all you have to do. Log into that and you can find each show. Every episode is all listed on there. There's a bit of information about what the podcast, the podcast, podcast is all about. So thank you very much for joining in. With the Casimir Engine Show podcast. So what's been happening, Kaz? Well, I'll tell you what. I've been having a transatlantic chat with a gentleman who lives in America. I wanted to get an idea of what it's like living in the States, growing up in the States, first of all. But living in the States now, we see it all over the news. The political situation, gun crime, all that kind of thing. And I wanted to get an idea of what it's like today. From the horse's mouth. Cashmere Engine! I've listened to your show and it's a shambles! So what else has been happening then, Kaz? Well, I've been on a business trip to Glasgow. I go up there quite regularly. Um, weird thing happened though. Um, I was checking into my um, hotel of choice. It's up at the airport. It's um, a generic business hotel. Um, but I just happened to have a gold card for this hotel. So I'm checking in, lady said, oh, uh, what's your name? I said, engine, Casimir engine. So she taps it in on a little computer thing and she says, um, oh yeah, um, staying for uh, two nights. I said, yeah. Uh, I handed over me gold card and she said, oh, you're a gold card. Um, would you mind uh, moving further down? Uh, there's a queue behind me of all people checking in. She said, would you mind moving down a little bit further? So I looked down and there's a red carpet with some of them celebrity rope things, like you're walking into a premiere of a movie. And had to move and walk down and stand on this red carpet just because I was checking in with my gold card. It was bizarre. Anyway, I got upgraded, got a free Mars bar and a bottle of water. So, hey, every cloud's got a silver lining. Let's have a chat with Eric. You're listening to the Casimir Engine Show podcast. This is Eric Daum, and you're listening to the Casimir Engine Show. And thank you for joining us. Thank you very much for joining us. Eric's agreed to answer some questions that we've we've posed on the uh, on the Casimir Engine podcast show. Um, if you're ready to uh, to start through the list of questions, um, I yeah, but I have I have a quick question for you. How many? of these have you recorded so far we've only done the one so you what well actually the first one was uh to test the equipment because i'm using uh, I heard that yeah i'm using new equipment compared so to I'm, I'm regular the first guest. you're the very very first guest yes i'm really really honored <laughs> you might be the last guest but <laughs> <laughs> yeah. um dennis the studio dog was with us bar, everybody. <laughs> um Tell us, well, you're going to tell us a bit about yourself. Um, now, we were thinking of talking, uh, of calling this um, particular section sensible or ludicrous. Okay, because some of the questions are, are um, well, I hope are, are, are poignant and, and of the moment. 
others are are pretty you know sort of basic and and we'll start off with a basic and this is the one i think i think we're going to use this as the regular starter question to get everybody everybody going and you might have to you might have to let me know whether this should be called jello but what's your favorite flavor and color of jelly slash i'm assuming you mean jello as we call it here in the states the stuff that wobbles yeah, yeah well, there are a lot of things that wobble, but not all of them are translucent. <laughs> um, let's see. I'm, I don't really... I haven't had it in ages, but really? I think as a kid, I always... Well, my, it was funny. When I was a kid, my mother would always make it, and she'd slice bananas into it. Ooh. And I think that that was her method of getting fresh fruit into us. <laughs> um, and I can remember... Lime Jello with with sliced bananas. Um, we often had red, which I'm not sure whether it was cherry, raspberry, or strawberry. Uh, and a personal favorite was grape, but that was a rare delicacy. Grape. We we Perfect. don't have we don't have grape flavored anything other than wine. I, I, I don't know that we've got grape drinks or anything like that. Good God, grape soda is so utterly vile and artificial. It is one of the <laughs> things you can imagine fantastic okay um were you a rolling stone or were you a beetle uh, i was I, I although i do like some of the stone songs and i have actually seen the stones once i would say i'm probably more of a Beatles fan. yeah and my taste would probably run up through magical mystery tour and I don't particularly like Sgt. Pepper's The White Album, Abbey yeah. Road, or Let It Be, which probably makes me a heretic in most places. You know, I'm with you all the way on um, on Sgt. Pepper's Let It Be, I think, and probably only because I can remember the, the, the film of them on top of the apple. They sure. looked fantastic. I think it's... It's it's but get back and uh, on on top of the Apple building is just remarkable. And anybody under the age of probably... Um, 25 now is thinking they were on top of the apple building thinking it was like steve jobs's office <laughs> or something like that but no there was another apple but um uh, yeah i think that was my fate on looks i suppose that was my favorite look Wait, are you more are you going back towards the shea stadium and all that kind of thing well i mean i honestly i i, I can honestly remember as a child i was probably five or six seeing them on the Ed Sullivan show. And my sister's five years older than me, so she was already into the hysteria of it. Yeah. Even had a Beatles wig. Um, <laughs> would would play along to the first albums with her best friend in our living room, beating on old cookie tins with with uh, Lincoln Log toys. Yeah. Uh, to, uh, and uh, they had a mic stand that they made out of a cin- cinder block, a metal pole, and a tin can that they had punctured with an awl. Uh, and and uh, so as a kid, I was... At five, and here's my ten-year-old sister behaving like this. I was terribly impressed. Yeah. Um, but for me, the real apogee of of, of the Beatles production were uh, Revolver and Rubber Soul. Yeah. Those are my two favorite records. Great albums, great albums. I was a big fan of the Jam when I was when I was a lot younger, and you can see that Rubber Soul kind of thing in in the in the Paul Weller stuff. Absolutely, and, and Setting Suns is my favorite jam record. I think yeah, it's great, great albums. But you've scouted over it pretty quickly. That you went to see the Rolling Stones. Uh, I well, I had a my my dearest friend, uh, who was the best man at my wedding, had, was dating a woman who was much younger than he was, and she was a um, an avid Stones fan. And she would see as many concerts as she could. And she bought tickets to see them in Boston, um, which is the largest city near where I am, and invited my wife and, and I to, to join her and her boyfriend, John, at, at the show. So I saw them in the Fleet Center of Boston, which is a big arena, typically for basketball or hockey. Um, Mick Jagger was an ant in the distance. Um, and I have to say, I was I, I there was I had long ago decided I was never going to go to an arena show again because I just think they're really dreadful. Yeah. Um, I and Once I started seeing bands that I liked in small clubs and small theaters, uh, I, I really had no desire to go back to an arena. Yeah. You know, at the immediacy of a performance when you're standing 10 feet from the guy who's singing or, or you know, even 20 feet, it really makes a difference. Yeah, it makes a hell of a difference. Somebody was telling me the other day that Mick Jagger's still got a 28-inch waist. 
Is that humanly possible on a marriage? Well, it certainly hasn't been humanly possible since I was about 14. (laughs) (laughs) So if you could be in a band, and I think I I might know the answer to this, but if you could be in a band, um, who would you have been in? That's a really hard one, but I I mean, I can tell you who my favourite bands are, but I'm not necessarily sure I'd want to be in any of them. Um, I'm a huge Roxy Music fan. You see, I'd, I'd have thought you were going to say, yeah, I'd been Brian Eno or something like that. Well, well, I, I, I particularly like the Roxy albums that Brian Eno was involved with. Um, I'm a, I, and I actually, as a kid, I was a prog rock fan mostly in high school, and my love of particularly the power trio of John Wetton, Bill Bruford, and Robert Fripp. Um, was what eventually brought me to Roxy Music because yeah. of Wetton's association with them in the 70s. Uh, and then Roxy is probably my favorite band at this point. Uh, and then, um, but I still love King Crimson. I really fell in love with John Fox era Ultravox yeah. uh, back in the late 70s, early 80s. Uh, and, and actually, I saw the major Ultravox on their first U.S. tour, and I was really disappointed. Um, it wasn't it didn't sort of have the drama that I expected. Yeah. Uh, I also really love Bowie. Um, I'm a huge Bill Nelson Bebop Deluxe fan. Uh, and then also I really love David Sylvian in Japan. And I think it's interesting that these five distinct musical entities, you know, Roxy, Crimson, Ultravox, Japan, and Bebop Deluxe, in some form or another, all at one point played with one another long after sort of that the high point of, of their days. And I, yeah. just think, I'm, I just think that's an interesting sort of curiosity. There's a definite link between most of them, I think. Um, I think to, they're, everybody's played with somebody else. Yeah, but it was even David Sylvian and, and Brian Ferry, that was when I first, when I, first time I heard Gentlemen Take Polaroids. You thought it was Ferry, uh, right? It was incredible, wasn't it? But <laughs> I've got to throw this one at you. Um, one of my favourite Roxy Music albums is Avalon. It has oh, to God, be. It has to be. <laughs> I'm going to listen to it later. I really am. Oh. But it has to be the most romantic album ever. And if Tracy Turton is listening to this podcast, then she'll know why. She'll know why. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's a fabulous from the album. Past? So, <laughs> yeah, but Mrs. Engine's not listening to this, so we're okay. okay we're okay. So. Um, God, in, 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 no, no, it's funny. That, no, I just want to say it's funny that you bring up Avalon because I, I, I'm on a as I'm on the Bill Nelson forum, I'm on a Roxy forum, and I also am on a uh, Roxy, um, couple of Roxy Facebook pages, and there seems to be a clear divide between people who like the first five albums and people who like the latter three. Yeah, uh, and I, I sort of. Cross the line because I think there's some stuff on Manifesto which was utterly brilliant, yeah. but Flesh and Blood leaves me cold, and I really do not like Avalon at all. You don't like? No, I really don't like it. I think it's I think it's it's stopperific and and dull and not a, not in the least bit effective. <laughs> What was it like growing up in the 70s in America then? We're of a similar age, I think. I think, that's... I think so, yeah. Um, well, actually, I was born in 1958, so by, the, by 1970 I was 12, so I had already entered my adolescent years. Um, I, um, it was, I had a sort of odd experience because I went to an all-boys private school. I guess you'd call it a public school over yeah. there. Um, and I was, I think from the time I was about I was utterly girl crazy and it was probably just as well that I was locked away um, (laughs) because I don't think I would have I would have been at all successful as a student had had I had the distraction of girls around me Um, but I uh, I ended up going to school even though it was a day school um, it was I was not I, I didn't live near, I mean, I didn't go to school near my house. The kids who lived in my neighborhood, I didn't spend a lot of time with. 
Uh, the kids who I went to school with lived in another part of the city for me, so I didn't tend to see them. So I was a very isolated kid. Uh, I spent a lot of time by myself. I was kind of bookish. Um, once I became interested in music, I was a voracious vinyl a addict. Um, yeah. And uh, where, where did you live? I grew up in Providence, Rhode Island, okay. which is about an hour south of Boston. Um, I am a militant Rhode Islander, and even though I haven't lived there since I was about um, 17 full-time, um, I think it, it, it's a place I'm very passionate about. It's uh, Of the 50 United States, it's the smallest. Yeah. Uh, and we used to jokingly, and, and, and it's funny, because growing up in such a small place, it really warps your sense of time and distance. Um, I have friends from other parts of the United States who think nothing of driving two hours to go out to dinner. Yeah. In Rhode Island, it took 45 minutes to get from one side of the state to the other, and people would consider that a day trip and would often <laughs> consider alerting the media yeah. before they left home. Um, <laughs> and and honestly, I, you know, Providence to Newport was probably a 40-minute drive, and people would say, you know, you, you can't go to Newport. It's all the way across the state. <laughs> and uh, But it was um, – but so it was a sort of weird – downtrodden former industrial city uh, but and because time had sort of passed it by there was this incredible collection of really beautiful historic architecture okay. um, a lot of pre-revolutionary and just post-revolutionary architecture and it was deeply influential in my own sort of sense of place and, it, and as cities in the United States go it's actually one of the prettier ones and there's been a tremendous amount of re renovation of these historic structures since the Casimir engine Reliably mediocre. Providence was founded by Roger Williams, who was driven out of Massachusetts Bay Colony in, I think it was 1635, by the Puritans, because he had a much more um, open view of religion. He believed that one's relationship to God was a very personal thing. Uh, and so he was driven away, and, and he set up a colony called Providence based upon the blessings of Providence. Uh, and then Anne Hutchinson, who was another dissenter from the Puritans, founded the colony of Newport in the southern part of the state on the island, which is known as Rhode Island. Mm -hmm. A little bit of trivia, Rhode Island, despite being the smallest state, has the longest name because it's actually the state of uh, Rhode Island and Providence Plantations. I'll remember that for the next quiz I'm in. I'll, that's <laughs> that's going to be in there, isn't it? Smallest state, longest name. Um, but so there was always this this, this view of religious tolerance. So, the, you know, the, the first synagogues, they were welcoming to Quakers. Um, all the Protestant, uh, sorry, sects were welcomed in Rhode Island. Uh, but in the 19th century, it was really a, a, a center of industry in the United States. And at the, about the turn of the, uh, turn of the 20th century, it actually had the highest per capita income of any of the states in the country because there was so much manufacturing in town, and there were some yeah. incredibly wealthy companies uh, in Providence that had managed to um, that had managed to, to grow and, and really infuse the, the capital with a tremendous amount of, of, of money. So it was a, but then it sort of became downtrodden. But there's a the neighborhood I grew up in, just outside of the center of the city, was primarily Irish Catholic. Yeah. Um, most of my friends uh, who I went to school with were either Jewish or Italian. Yeah. Um, there were a few sort of waspy types, um, but not many. Uh, there, you know, it's a fairly it's a fairly diverse state. Um, but I would say, you know, the large the large ethnic populations are, are Irish, Italian, and Portuguese. Which brings me to another question, a bit further down the list of uh, that I, that I sent through to you. But um, America's full of immigrants. Unless you're Native American, then you were an, an immigrant. Or you say Irish, American, Portuguese. Whereabouts are you from? Um, I'm, I'm a mutt. Um, my mother's family... A what? Actually, sorry. I don't have any particular... Sorry? A mutt. A mongrel. A mongrel. All right. Um, my... Well, I mean, I, the most recent immigrants that I have in my family are my mother's grandparents um, on her mother's side who came from Sweden. Okay. Um, so that was about 1900. Um, on her father's side, they actually date back to the earliest days of the 
English colonies uh, in Connecticut and Massachusetts. So 1630s. Yeah. Um, on my dad's side, uh, his grandfather emigrated from Germany as a small boy of about three uh, with his parents from the area around Darmstadt in 1850. And uh, on his mother's side, they were um, Huguenot, Scottish, and uh, English, and uh, mid, mid-18th century. That really is a mixture. That is. That you would send an Ancestry.com into a bit of a spin. Well, I, I, it's some of, and, and a lot of people have disappeared, so there are some dead ends. But it's interesting, because I do, um, I do uh, on my father's side, theoretically have a Native American ancestor. Yeah. And uh, she lived in western Pennsylvania. Uh, and although my sister, my mother, and I have all done DNA tests through Ancestry, my sister actually came up positive with a with a trace amount of Native wow. American ancestry. So that confirmed that. And then on my wife's side, her father um, was actually an immigrant from Finland as a small boy. Yeah. And uh, then her mother's family is actually, her, her mother's family parallels my mother's family. They go back to the earliest days of the Massachusetts colony. And uh, she also has a Native American ancestor on yeah. her mother's Okay. You've never thought about coming over to Europe or have you been over uh, to Europe? Oh, I've, I've been, I've, I have not traveled as much as I would like. I would desperately like to, um, I actually had plans to go to, to England and Paris last fall, uh, first to see the Bill Nelson concert, but couldn't go for health reasons. Yeah. Uh, and then um, I met, I've been to Germany, Sweden, Belgium, Netherlands, and, and uh, Finland, uh, but that was about 30 years ago. And then uh, in the 90s, my wife and I were spent about a week in London. So. Yeah. But I would like to travel more, definitely. And what did your parents do? My father was a doctor. Yeah. Uh, he worked for the government uh, in the Veterans Administration. He had been, um, he had been in the Navy as a surgeon's mate um, during the Second World War, and uh, he was pretty bright guy and they sent him away to medical school while the war was still going on uh, and so he became a doctor and I think he felt indebted to the government for that so he worked in veterans affairs his whole life yeah and uh, he died in 2009 and my mom uh, who we met while he was in med school was a nurse and uh, back in the 70s she actually went back and got her master's degree in psychiatric nursing and in addition to being a, a psychiatric nurse in Freudian analysis, uh, my mother's also a painter and a, I think a really talented painter. Fantastic. Is that where you get your art side from? And, uh, Definitely. We, I don't really know. not from my father's side. <laughs> but I think, you know, there, there's, I think we're all, um, my, my son wants to be a painter uh, and, and is a really uh, great writer. My sister is a good painter and, and, and a really brilliant photographer. Yeah. Uh, and my mother's a really great painter. So I think there's a lot of creativity on that side of the family. Well, I don't think we've mentioned you, you're an architect. Yes. And specializing in domestic? Uh, residential or? architecture, yeah. um, historic. Uh, again, I think growing up in Providence had a profound impact on me uh, in terms of my taste. Yeah. Uh, and when I was in college, I was actually a history student. Okay. And I had a very good friend who was taking architecture classes at Columbia, and he was complaining that uh, he wanted to do very measy and sort of modern things. And he uh, was complaining that the professor, who was the fairly famous architect, Robert Stern, uh, was telling him he needed to do more traditional stuff, and he was rebelling. And I was looking at what my friend was doing and saying, I think your teacher's making a lot of sense. I'd love to be doing that. So the following year, I enrolled in that class. And I was a pretty indifferent student in school uh, once I got to college. And that was the first time that I ever felt that I found something that I really loved that I became obsessive about. Yeah. And, and I was able to draw on my great love of the historic architecture of Providence. Yeah. But what did you want to do as a small boy? I don't know whether you can see. I, I just, wanted to be either. I wanted to be I, an astronaut, you see. I, okay, st- I still you. want to be an astronaut. I've got a NASA T-shirt on. So what What did you want? What was your, was your ambition to be an architect? Well, uh, no, not at all. It was something I came to fairly late in life when I was... Um, I don't think I really thought about it much as a small child. 
But by the time I was about um, 12, I really wanted to be a Formula One driver. <laughs> and, Actually, and it's then, probably a bit more realistic than being an astronaut, isn't it? And then um, oh, I was passionate about Formula One as a kid. And then... Um, Who was your favourite driver at the time? At the time... Well, I was a huge Jackie Stewart fan. Yeah. Um, I really liked Emerson Fittipaldi. Um, the Swiss driver, Clay Regazzoni. Uh, I liked Jackie Eeks, a Belgian driver. Yeah. Um, but, but that sort of early 70s crew really mattered to me. And then when Mario Andretti decided to devote himself full-time to Formula One in the late 70s, I was really hooked at that yeah. point. Um, yeah. I'm very glad to have an American who was being competitive. I really loved Ronnie Peterson, the Swedish driver yeah. as well. I was quite devastated when he died. Um, Do you go to the Indy Five? Indy Five? I've never been to Indy, but I've been to a number of Formula One races in Montreal. My dad used to take me to Watkins Glen when the uh, U.S. Grand Prix was held there back in the seventies. Yeah, it's really weird because um, the, the only Formula One I've been to was in Montreal. Really? I mean, yeah, I mean, why would you... Why, why just, were you there? It was just some bizarre chance that it was on when I was in... Um, I was uh, on a worked trip to uh, to see some suppliers. It was really just go to the... What year, what go year to, was this? It was just to go to the Montreal Grand Prix and get drunk a lot, I suppose. But, um, yeah, it was, it, that was the only one I've ever been to. I've not, I, I wasn't ever a big fan. I feel terrible because I took somebody's ticket i suppose if you think about it but mm -hmm. um it was a fantastic experience what year was it oh crikey let me think it would have probably been something like 99 something like that probably no 2001 something i was there oh the only thing that you you, you got to be kidding but <laughs> I was there from 2000, uh, 2000, 2001, 2, and 3. Those are the four years. I've still one. got the ticket thing somewhere. <laughs> I will, I'll find it and I'll one? let you know. That would be you weird. Who won the race? No, it was probably having a couple of drinks by then. <laughs> it was red hot. All I can remember, it was boiling hot and we ended up at, um, this is really fancy. We went to Gilles Villeneuve's restaurant. Newtown. Fantastic. Taste the menu. Really? Yeah, it was like huge. Well, small, about thirty small di um, dishes with Place, yeah. thirty glasses of wine with it as well. So uh, gradually, you, you couldn't taste the food after a bit. But it was, uh, yeah, it was. Uh, it must great have been experience. a little later because I don't think that I think that opened. Um, I think that opened in two thousand one or two thousand two. I'll have to. I'll find the ticket. I will find the ticket. That's I know really one of the. I know one I of the. I think I was probably waiting in line for the bathroom. <laughs> <laughs> the weird thing is, is another. I think another passion of yours is is baseball. I, I'm not really. I, I I like baseball. Yeah. I was an absolutely terrible player as a child, but um, I have. I've always had a great love of underdogs, and as a kid. I um, I fell in love with the Cleveland Indians, who yeah. were of the team my father, who was from Ohio, rooted for as a boy. Although he didn't when I, when he was an adult, but somehow the love passed on to me. Uh, and I am passionate about the Indians. And I have to say, I don't think there are many people who've actually gone to Cleveland just to see a baseball game. No. Most people avoid Cleveland. <laughs> <laughs> and you've been all that way? Uh, several times. No. I've even dragged my wife when we were dating before we married. She still married me. <laughs> I've only I've been to one baseball match on the same trip. Um, it sounds weird. We were in Montreal and we ended up in Atlanta. And I went to see, the, is it the Atlanta Braves? That's it. They've got a red Indian kind of look. Yes. Yeah. And um, I went to that. Uh, still, yeah, I think it, it is actually worse than cricket. I don't know whether you've ever seen a cricket match. I've but, actually watched some cricket and I find it fascinating. Really? Yeah. Nothing happens until the very well, end. Think, then they bring on the best batsman. He is a, kind of a rounders run thing. And then the game's over. All I wanted to do was the... Eh, 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 eh. That's all I wanted to do. And the bizarre thing, I know you've probably heard about um, soccer over here, or football for our English listeners, but... Um, I actually follow the Bundesliga, just so you know. Oh, my right. son is a huge Arsenal fan. Oh, okay. Well, you might know that there was, in the past, in the distant past, luckily in the past, there was a bit of violence over here when it came to football matches and things I know, like that. I've never heard that. And then I get to America, and they sell baseball bats in the local, in the shop, in in the ground. I mean, they would never do that in England because people would kill each other with them. But more than likely, that was, 
fan incredible. But uh, where did you go on holiday as a kid? Um, well, two places. Uh, there was a house that we would rent in Cape Cod, uh, which is a peninsula jutting out into the Atlantic south of Boston. Um, beautiful beaches. Uh, and my mother had some college friends who had houses out there. We would stay in the same area. And it was just an idyllic sort of existence for kids. You would yeah. run out the door after breakfast barefoot and wearing a swimsuit and a T-shirt and come home for dinner. And we would run up and down the sand dunes and up and down the beach and hunt for crabs and pick mussels and and uh, just it was it was lovely. It was so much fun. And then um, we also had a cabin up in the woods of Maine on a really pristine lake that we would go to every year. And it was it was pretty primitive. I mean, an outhouse and and a, a hand pump that pumped the water up out of the lake into the kitchen, so you had to boil it before you could drink it. I mean, it was. But it was, as a kid, you know, you don't, those sorts of creature comforts don't bother you. But my parents would always complain that it took about a month for their backs to get back in shape after <laughs> the awful army cots that they had to sleep on up there. So that gives me a, a good lead into uh, a bit of a more serious question then. Um, was it a hunting trip or anything like that? No, we're we're pretty. Um, my parents were very liberal, and, and uh, I don't think any. I think my sister fished a little bit. Okay. She's a little more outdoorsy than I am. But no, we would. I would never. I couldn't hunt. So the big question then for a lot of people over here is opinion on gun control. I have to be careful because I've got to be unbiased because I may eventually speak to some kind of redneck bigot that um, I, I would probably be um, sort of pro. Um, um, is it the, the what which, which amendment is it? Is it the right to bear arms? Well, I, I, again, depending on how you interpret it, it you know, I, the implications depending on one's interpretation, and it is a, um, it is a decidedly ambiguous wording, um, but it it states that uh, a well-regulated uh, militia being necessary for the defense of the state. The right to bear arms shall not be infringed. Yeah. I, I may be slightly off in my quote there, but um, the idea was at the, the the original founding fathers were really opposed to the idea of the standing army, uh, particularly having had British troops quartered in the United States, in the colonies. Um, they didn't want a situation where a standing army could be used to impose governmental will upon the people. Uh, so and also, it was extremely expensive for a small, founded, you know, recently founded state to, to, to finance and maintain a standing army. Um, but it was believed that we were, as citizens, capable of defending ourselves as need be. Every able-bodied man was expected to be able to turn out on a moment's notice and, and defend their homes. Um, and they had a, a degree, and the term regular, uh, well-regulated, basically meant, you know, well-trained. Um, so they were expected to go through a, a, a regular routine of military training just to understand how to march in formation, follow the commands for firing. Yeah. Um, but so the militia was really seen as a as a, a defensive measure. Um, more importantly, uh, on the what was on the frontier, which was still relatively close to the coast because of uh, the conflicts between the Native Americans and and, and the colonists who were moving west. But also, particularly in the South, because of the fear of slave uprisings, because slavery was imposed through violence. Yeah. Uh, and, and you needed that kind of force of arms to keep it in check. Uh, so, you know, I personally do not believe that the Second Amendment means that everybody should have a gun, and particularly don't think it means that everybody should have an AK-47. Yeah. Uh, can, but, you, can you actually buy that kind of thing in the local uh, supermarket? um you can buy an assault. You can buy a rifle with a semi-automatic function, uh, which basically, you know, when you fire a shot, it reloads the bullet into the next chamber. But you have to pull the trigger each time you want to fire a shot. But I believe there are readily available methods of circumventing that to turn what is intended to be a, a, a rifle into a machine gun. And do you, do you know people who have guns? Many. My, in fact, my father-in-law worked 
for Sturm Ruger in the gun factory. Yeah. He made guns his whole life. He has a fairly large, um, he has a fairly large uh, collection of, of rifles and handguns. I have a very good friend who's another Finn who um, also has a large collection of guns and hunts regularly. But I will say that, you know, even though I don't think I could hunt, because I think I'd find it. Actually, just yesterday, my cats caught a mouse, and it was severely wounded, and I had to take it outside. And I was in a deep depression for about an hour. Um, but my... Uh, I just laughed at the death of a mouse. I can't believe it. But... <laughs> well, my wife was laughing at it, and, and I was all broken up. I think I was um, laughing at you rather than the mouse. Can I just put it that way? That might be a bit better. But my... Um, but my... But the people I know, you know, like this, who are you know, my, my, my friend and my father-in-law, they're very careful. They're very rigorous. They're, um, they're very disciplined about the way they use their guns. And they don't hunt sort of for the joy just of killing things. I mean, for them, it's a whole process. Um, and just as an aside, um, when Beth and I were married... My father-in-law provided venison that was made into a really lovely ragu by the caterer. So okay. <laughs> it was fabulous. So, but you you posted an interesting. You beat me to it actually. I'd I'd um I'd, I'd heard a track by Childish Gambino. Um, this is America, and you posted that video before anybody else that I knew had, had posted had, had posted it up, and it is an incredible incredible experience to watch that um the the just the shock of of watching um uh, the 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 action want of a better expression um so have you got have you got opinions on on current gun control in america well let's talk about the video a little bit Uh, i actually thought it was brilliant and really chilling yeah um i think that as a relatively privileged white american I don't have a I don't have a deep understanding of what life is like for African Americans in our country. Um, I do I have had some African American friends through my life and and uh, but I can't say that I had a real awareness of what their lives were like on a daily basis. Um, but I, I think our culture is far more segregated than it should be. Um, in fact, I will say that when I was in London, I was I was surprised by how much more integrated at least London seemed to be than New York or yeah. Boston. Um, and that I, you'd see interracial, you know, mixed race couples together regularly in London at a time you rarely saw it in New York City. Really? Um, and so that was sort of noteworthy. But, I, but going back to the Childish Gambino video, I mean, I think it, it, it represents... Uh, sort of the violence and the fear and the, the disconnectedness from comfort that that, that culture feels. Yeah. And I think, for me, it was really shocking because I take so much for granted in my life. And, yeah. and the things I take for granted are things that, that a lot of Americans can't take for granted. Do you think there's an answer somewhere in the future? Absolutely. Yeah. But I think it's going to take time and it's going to take tolerance. And I think that we made a lot of progress under the Obama administration. I think there was a sense of of coming together as a nation, but I think the last year and a half has done a tremendous amount to unravel whatever gains were made. Am I taking from that that you are not a Trump supporter? I have never been a Trump supporter. I lived in New York when he was sort of rising in a media presence. Um, my first exposure to him was the destruction of the former Bonwit Teller department store, which had some significant bas-relief sculptures on its facade. And they were slated to be removed carefully and, and given to the Metropolitan Museum in New York. And he ordered his foreman to drive the wrecking ball right through the middle of them because his building, Trump Tower, which is the most garish piece yeah. of shit I've ever seen, he said would be greater art than those awful things. Yeah. And I just, I thought he was a real Philistine and, um, all of his behavior through the years, he's just, he struck me as, as, um, self-promoting, bombastic, anti-intellectual, uh, and, and I, I actually have a client who supported him and held a huge, uh, uh, rally for him at the beginning of the presidential campaign in 2015 
at his estate, and Donald Trump was there, and I went with an open mind to listen. But within five minutes of him opening his mouth, he confirmed everything I thought about him. I just don't think he's a particularly careful, sensitive, intelligent, thoughtful, intellectually curious man. And I think uh, he has no understanding of how uh, government works. He has no understanding of history. He has no understanding of the policies that this country has had in place since the conclusion of the Second World War that have built, I think, a really um, fruitful and, and, and comforting alliance for, for Western Europe and the United States. Um, that, that our, our role as, uh, as, a, as a beacon of hope for people around the world, I think, has been trashed. And it, it, it's, very, it's very disturbing to me. From over here, we would probably hope beyond hope that he's just a puppet for, um, for a real government. There are people behind him. Does he have that kind of control? Is he is he running the country on Twitter? It just amazes us that we would never have that situation where our prime minister would probably be allowed to tweet um, the kind of things that, 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 that Donald Trump is putting out there. Well, I mean, there is a bureaucracy in place, um, but he's done a lot to dismantle it. Um, yeah. The people he's put in the heads of the various cabinet departments, you know, the equivalent of your ministries, um, sort of hew the line of, of promoting big business and dismantling the sorts of protections and regulations that that made our lives better. Uh, environmental regulations are being tossed out. Um, workmen's uh, worker safety regulations are being tossed out. He's jeopardizing longstanding alliances and, and mutual economic pacts that we have with Canada and the UK. Um, it's it's just it's it's really disturbing. I don't honestly think that uh, a lot of his a lot of what you sort of allude to is that the people behind him support everything that he's doing and saying. Um, it's a beacon of hope in the government. It's, it's uh, somebody in I there think there, that... there'll be a beacon of hope with the 2018 elections if yeah. the uh, Congress can go Democratic. I think there's a chance the House of Republican, the Republican uh, Republicans will lose control of the House of Representatives, and if they do, it'll essentially stalemate the government. Yeah. I think that's all we can hope for. I, I, Many people that I listened to leading up to the 2016 campaign uh, said that they thought that whoever was elected, whether it were Clinton or Trump, it would probably be a one-term presidency. Yeah. And I think that that's probably likely. Over here, we've got Brexit, of course. And um, if we probably um, put the vote back out to the people, it might it might be a different a different story. Do you think uh, Donald Trump would get in if if there was an if there was a if we went back in time and people knew? I know hindsight's a great thing, but do you think he would get in on his uh, on his political stance at the moment? I think it might be a different result. I. I... My understanding is a lot of people did not vote. The actual voting numbers were down. People might not vote for the third-party candidates like Jill Stein or, or um, oh, I forget who the other guy was, um, because uh, they would be concerned about what would happen. I think, personally, I think Clinton would have been a good president. Yeah. Uh, I don't think she's nearly so corrupt as people on the right in this country paint her to be. Um, but I think the corruption within the Trump administration is apparent to all of us on a daily basis. something a bit more light-hearted um, which, ah. which monkey would you have been i think you know i loved the monkeys as a kid um i really loved I, them i watched the show my sister had the my sister had the albums and i listened to them um i still think i'm a their version of i'm a believer is probably the greatest power pop song of all yeah. time um but no i don't think i ever wanted to be any of them <laughs> Well, my birthday is the same day as Mickey Dolenz. And years and years ago, I had dinner at a restaurant in Nottingham. And he was at the next table. 
And I, I never spoke to him. I can't believe I didn't speak to Mickey Dolenz after loving the monkeys for all those years. And he was sitting at the next table and I didn't see Oh, anything. you should have said hello. I was just shy. What was I, was a war- I was a What was he doing in Nottingham? He used to, yeah. make, he used to make this terrible sitcom called Metal Mickey about a robot. He went into TV. There's Mike Nesmith did um, MTV. Well, oh, Mike then, Nesmith did music. Yeah. Um, he has a uh, international... Wait, no, what was it? The did he international bands or something? He did... Um, oh, I'm trying he did to think. country music. I had one of his records, and it's wonderful. I'm but. trying to think of his big hit single. What was his big hit single? Um, Equity? No, there was something about... Um, he's going down to Rio, was it? Going down to Rio or something like that? I can't right. remember. Again, Avalon and the Mike Nesmith um, single will be will be will be going on going on Spotify a bit later on. But yeah, I didn't speak to um, uh, to Mickey Dolenz, which is uh, yeah, it'll well, it'll never. So who's the most famous person you've met? Uh, oh, crying. Yeah, I'm supposed to be asking the questions this end. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, the most famous person I've ever met. I don't know. Well, this met and bumped into. I, I, I've, I've physically crashed into. Said more ten... than hello to. Oh, said more than hello to. Um, I don't. I need to think about that. What about yourself? I'm trying to decide. I think, um, probably Judith Rosner, the American writer. Yeah. Because I. Um, house sat for her when I was in college. My then girlfriend's mother was Judith Rosner's best friend, and my girlfriend and I house sat for her. And she had a dog that we took care of. Yeah, I still can't think. I'm I'm racking my brain now to think who I've met. But Bill now, I'll sell Bill and I'll, I'll say Bill Nelson. I'll go with that. That's, one. A, that's a fine one. It's not bad, is it? It's not bad. Um, what was your first car? Well, when I was in, uh, I didn't have a car when I was a kid. Um, uh, my parents drove Saabs. Um, I, so I learned how to drive on a Saab 99. Uh, and my dad also had a Saab Sonet sports car, um, which I also drove as often as possible. Um, went off to college in New York, didn't need a car. Uh, and then when I was in graduate school, my parents had an old Renault 5 or Le Car as it was oh, marketed this, here. This, this is shocking. You're supposed to have said a Chevy or a Camaro or some big Thunderbird my or parents, something like my, that. So, within, so just, you're probably not aware of this, but within, you know, there are subcultures in America of very sort of Eurocentric people. And a lot of my friends never drove American cars. They had Fiats, they had Volkswagens, no. I had a friend who had a Rover. Um, a I Rover? I had friends whose parents drove Peugeots, um, and we we were a Saab and Volvo family. That's probably shocking. because of my mother's heritage. But well, yeah, well, yeah well, I've seen you've got Golf, have you got a Volkswagen Golf or something like that. I've got, uh, and, and for the last uh, for the last since '98, we've had six Volkswagens and a Volvo. <laughs> so. <laughs> Please get a T-Bird or can we just I, I, say, right, I'll ask the question again, right, and you say, oh, yeah, I used to have a Thunderbird or something like that, and then I can cut all that bit out about Peugeot's okay, and Renault Pipes and things like that. What car well, did you have when you were a kid? I had a Ford F1 <laughs> Doesn't sound right, doesn't say. We'll stick with a Peugeot, we'll stick with a Peugeot. <laughs> no, 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 it was a, it was a Renault Lecar. <laughs> what and, a... But, but the first car I bought was even more embarrassing. It was a Saturn SL2. Oh, right, I'm going to have to Google one of those then. Well, Saturn was a, a company started by General Motors in the early 90s in order to compete with the Japanese imports. Okay. And it was a small... Um, Not the Wayne's World car. I don't know. I've never seen Wayne's World. No. No. But, but it was a plastic-bodied, um, but it was, a, it was actually a delightful car to drive. It handled, had very neutral handling, um, and if you got the, the double overhead cam engine, it, 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 it revved pretty freely, and it was a lot, it was a really lovely car to drive. Um, For a guy who likes Formula their, One. Their great, um, their great claim was that Instead of having to haggle with your dealer, they came at a fixed price and there was no haggling. And I think a lot of people appreciated not having to go through the nightmare of buying a car and feeling like they were getting the best deal because everybody was getting the same exact deal. So that was the first car we bought when we moved to Boston back in 95. Fantastic. 
Uh, what um, we've spoken about, childish Gambino. Um, what other music I listen to at the moment? Are you are you looking back or are you looking towards the future for modern music? My taste is pretty eclectic. I like a lot of different stuff. So um, my wife and I have this ritual on on Tuesday nights where we'll make martinis and make a small dinner and and listen to Billie Holiday or Ella Fitzgerald. Um, I love country music, but not what's considered popular country music today. I like 1950s and 60s honky-tonk people like George Jones, Ernest Tubb, uh, Ray Price, um, and revivalists like Dwight Yoakam or Steve Earle are people I really yeah. like. There's a, a, a slate of Americana uh, performers like um, Alejandro Escovedo and, and the Jayhawks and the Canadian band Blue Rodeo. Um, I really love um, a lot of... British um, rock from the 90s, like Oasis and Pulp. Yeah. Um, I listen to Hungarian folk music. Um, for classical music, my taste is is pretty eclectic. Everything from um, early music through 20th century stuff. So, but you're, you're a musician. I'm all over the place. You're a musician yourself. You, you've got a band no, called I'm not. The Electric Angels. I am not a musician. You are a musician. No, I am not. Um, and, and you produce... I'm, a, I'm a hack. I'm definitely a hack. The, the Tangerine Girl, Eric Down. It's got your name on the on the on the on the track listing. I will say that I, I am I am to a musician what a Sunday painter is to an artist. Yeah. Yeah. No, I don't think so. We're going to have a listen to. I'm going to. I can play this because it's. Yeah, I don't think it's copy. You're not signed up to Sony or anyone like that with this, are you? No, 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 no. You can play it. Is, it. So I can play this. So, and, and I own the. Right. Um, and what, what? Which track do you think we should play? You choose. Can I you forget re- what's on that record? <laughs> um, we got. Um, I think one of the ones. Which one? I'm trying to think. Let's take a ride. Um, Angels Tears. Carnaby Street session. That sounds. Well, those, those are actually. Wait one second. I'm going to go grab my copy of it, which is just across the room. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah. <clears throat> Outer space vacation. I like the sound of that one as well. I can't remember it. Sweet Surrender was the single, I think. I am back. Is it? Was it so, Sweet um, Surrender? Outer was... Space Vacation is, it was, is Andy Turritz's favourite Electric Angels song, so you should play that. <laughs> I'll put that on there. But that's, that's probably one of my favourites as well. Um, but, you know, it's fun. The... Um, Angel's Tears and Here Today are two Bob Kingdon songs that we had cut as sort of traditional rock and roll songs. And I just started playing with uh, adding strings and other instrumentation. And then I liked what the strings were doing so much. I took all the other stuff out and we produced these alternate versions. So the the goal was to try and create sort of a 1960s sort of pop sound with harpsichords and strings and cellos and um i I think they were pretty successful i i I really enjoyed doing it so we have other versions of the songs as well we'll stick a couple on at the end anyway so um um i think that's about it that's i think we've answered pretty much all of the questions that um that that i've got on the list um, all I want to say is thank you very much for joining us. Thank you for being the first guest on the Casimir Engine Show podcast. Well, thank you very much. I was delighted to do it. It was really fun. And I honestly think anybody who listens to this will be a lunatic. I can't <laughs> Not when I've edited it. It's interesting about my life. <laughs> Not after I've edited it. So you'll be, you'll be fine. So, uh, no, this was brilliant. And I really thank you very much for being on the show. Well, thank you, Kaz.